We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna. Well, I'll tell you what, here's what Sean McDermott is. He's a detailed, discipline oriented guy. That, that's what he does best. Uh, and when you look at him in Carolina, he did a great job of adapting his personnel. When he had a Josh Norman, he moved him all over the field. When he didn't, he worked with younger players, developed them. He can adapt his defense to personnel. His time has come. He's a veteran defensive coordinator. He's been in the league, paid his dues, had his interviews. Being in the playoffs the last couple of years probably caught, it cost him a head job along the way. But a good solid hire. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rock Pile Report podcast. I'm your host, Drew Gear, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And that was Charlie Casserly talking on the NFL Network about our new head coach, Sean McDermott. The 20th head coach in Bills history, folks. He's here. He's in the building. He's making changes. I kind of want Whenever we get a new head coach, every two to three years, in my head, I, I want Howard Finkel from the WWF when he announces a new champion that, <laughs> and new head coach of the Buffalo Bills, Sean McDermott. Last week, I know we announced that we were going to go to a bi-weekly format, but fuck that. We have a new head coach. Well, yeah, we got to talk about it. We have no choice but to get here behind the microphones and talk to you guys. So thanks so much for showing up, and let's get right into this with this week's Bills News Update. Bills News Everywhere. Bills fans everywhere received some good news this week. Um, Aaron Williams may be making a return to the team in 2017. After suffering back-to-back season-ending neck injuries, a lot of people out there thought that And maybe a lot of them still think that Aaron Williams will retire from the NFL. He's got no place playing. He's got no, he should just take his money, walk away, go live the rest of his life. And and maybe he should. I'm not here to tell him what to do or how to live his life. I retweeted the tweet from John Warrow of the Associated Press who spoke to Papa Williams and said that he's probably going to return. And I retweeted it with the caveat. We still should take a safety 
in rounds one, two, or three. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. But this is nothing but this is a win for Bills fans. If Aaron Williams really does want to return, I can see how some people out there would think about this on the flip side. I mean, Daryl Talley himself is a cautionary tale of what can happen when you play football for too long or you don't quit when you should. And it can affect the rest of your life. I mean, these guys are athletes, but they're people too. And they have, they're, they're going to have a life after this game leaves them behind. But the fact is, is that, and according to Aaron Williams' father, one of the things that drives him is this fan base. And it's just, the, he loves it. He loves the support that he gets from us. And that's what makes him want to get back out there and get us, uh, get us to our first playoff berth in the last 17 years. I mean, I've got nothing but respect for the guy at this point. And yes, I do still think we should we should spend some high draft capital on a safety. But having him back in the fold can do nothing but great teams things. Not only for just the team on the field, but just us, the fan base. You know, a player loves our support enough that he's willing to come back after something like that. You gotta love it. And with that, we are going to get right into the meat and potatoes of tonight's uh, tonight's show. The Bills' new head coaching search is over. Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott now wears the crown as Buffalo Bills head coach. I did put out on Twitter that uh, he kind of looks like comedian Bill Burr if Bill Burr went to the gym. <laughs> That's actually a really good one. I I, I almost thought it there's was already watching a, it. There's already already a Twitter account like Sean McDermott's pecs. That's fantastic. If you've seen the photo. Tweeted out by uh, Kim Pagula. Well, what do we know about him? He's a redhead. The guy's young. He's young, but he's accomplished. In his short time as an NFL coach, he's accomplished a lot. I mean, he most recently decoordinated the Carolina Panthers to a Super Bowl. Four of his six seasons as defensive coordinator in the top ten. I mean, he's got some accolades. So, on Friday, the Buffalo Bills held a press conference to announce their new head coach. And I'll tell you, I wasn't really all that impressed with the press conference itself. It started out like any other press conference. And again, John Warrow, a guy that I have a ton of respect for, he got the first question when he, he asked why he thinks, he asked Sean McDermott, why does he think that he's the guy to turn this franchise around? Now, throughout the course of the press conference, I think he answered it pretty well with the following audio. When I looked at this at this job, I've done my research, um, and you'll get to know me soon enough here. I, I'm a pretty uh, meticulous and thorough guy. Um, in my opinion, this was the best job on the market. And some people uh, may not agree, but it's important how I feel. Um, and I say that it was the best job on the market for a couple of reasons, namely uh, the ownership in Terry and Kim. I've seen what great ownership looks like, and we have two great owners in Terry and Kim that are willing and committed to this football team and this organization, the city of Buffalo. And then secondly, when you, when you talk about a fan base, I've been up here and I've played here before, and I've seen those fans, uh, capacity crowd hanging over that railing, Screaming when we were trying to do something on the other sideline. And, and that's what I want to be a part of. Um, that's what it's all about. And uh, 
and, and I, I look forward to creating and recreating that again at our stadium. Um, those, that's what I focused on. Sean McDermott, full press conference from buffalobills.com. Go there if you need to watch all 40 minutes of it. But don't I would I would recommend that you don't. For those of you out there who haven't seen the whole press conference, don't watch it. You know why? Because two-thirds of it is a waste of your time. I say that because, well, you have some journalists out there like John Warrow who asks, obviously he gets the first question, and he asks something legitimate. Why do you think you're qualified? You know, the guy has years of experience. He's rebuilt defenses before. He He's a diligent coach. I mean, he, he kind of answered it throughout the course of the press conference. And then you get Sal Carpaccio asked about the perception of Buffalo and how they sold him on the job, which, again, in that audio clip, it seems like he kind of answered it all. But I, th- then I turn around and I see guys like Jerry Sullivan. Fourth question in, the first thing he gets to say, fourth question that he's faced in the entire press conference, here comes Jerry Sullivan asking about Rex Ryan and Rex Ryan's promises and how this guy's going to be different. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't know what that has to do with this coach. Here's a guy who's it's his first day on the job. He's showing up. He's shaking hands with everybody he's going to spend the next couple years of his life working with, hopefully longer. And the first thing Jerry Sullivan can think to ask about is a coach who was just fired for ineptitude. If you want me to play the audio of just that question, I got it. Do you? Hot Go ahead tea. and hit me with it. Yes, Sean, Jerry Sullivan from the Buffalo News. Rex Ryan uh, sat up there two years ago, and he made a lot of promises. He promised to you know, have the number one defense and make the playoffs. Do you have any promises, or do you think it's important to keep expectations a little more modest this time? I don't understand what the fuck that has to do with him. Be- oh, Chris. <laughs> oh, God. So I don't know what that question is. Rex Ryan has nothing to do with Sean McDermott. They're two totally different people. And yet here's Jerry Sullivan dredging up whatever Rex said two years ago and trying to apply it to a brand new guy who's walking through the door with a fresh set of ideas, a fresh perspective. You have no idea what to expect from this guy. But that's who Jerry Sullivan is as a journalist. With the last question of the press conference, he already knows what the coach has said over who has power over the roster, but still felt it necessary to ask again who who has the power and who gets to make what decisions. And to kind of make Sean McDermott reiterate his comfort level with the structure and amount of authority he's been given. And yet, at the same time, he had no problem getting, Sean McDermott had no problem getting up there in front of them and explaining, I'm going to report to the Pagulas. Doug has control over the roster. I trust Doug. I trust Doug to do his end because I know I'm going to do mine. Yet here comes Jerry Sullivan with one more salty question to ask. I'd like to bite that guy's nose off in a parking lot somewhere. It's unbelievable. And then, after the press conference, the Buffalo News staff really outdid themselves. Tim Graham apparently has his own podcast. I don't know if any of you guys know it, follow it. If you do, I I feel bad for you. He thought it was a good idea to get Jerry Sullivan, Mike Rodak from ESPN.com, and Matthew Fairburn from the Syracuse Post Standard together so that they can all jerk off over what guy dislikes the Bills franchise more than the other guys. It's a joke. 
I'm sorry. I know this is the second podcast in a row that I've gone off on a referendum about the state of the Buffalo News and our local media. But I'll be honest. My takeaway from the press conference was that we have a guy who's young. He's he doesn't have a, he doesn't have any head coaching experience. But how do you get head coaching experience? You have to get thrown into the fire. And that decides whether or not you're a good head coach. What I do know is that he seems like a very competent defensive coordinator. And just from all the reports that have come out and all of the different things that were said during the press conference, he just strikes me as a guy who carries himself well. He's probably not. uh, He's unflappable from what I can tell, because some of the bullshit questions that he took, he didn't even flinch at. He just went back to what he had said before, calmly, casually. I mean, I think you'll remember Doug Marone kind of got salty with the press about halfway through his career here. But so back to this podcast. You know that the podcast has to be good because in the write-up for Tim Graham's podcast, he ref- he referred to the group that he had assembled as a quote-unquote blue-collar panel. Really? Oh, no, blue ribbon. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I've had a couple beers. I can't read. Blue ribbon panel. The only thing that I would give any of these guys a blue ribbon for any of them. I would never consider giving any one of Mike Rodak, Jerry Sullivan, Tim Graham, or Matthew Fairburn a blue ribbon. Unless it was the winner of the contest to see who could go home and brush their teeth with buckshot the fastest. Okay? Now, I get it. You all know that I'm a Bills homer. And I try to be fair and give criticism where I think it's due. Now, I'm not above criticizing coaches, criticizing players. But these guys are the friggin' worst. I couldn't get through the whole podcast, but I can say with the utmost sincerity, I'm pretty sure that if hell has a soundtrack, it's these guys with Bucky Gleason tossed into the mix, just bitching about Buffalo sports while that song Barbie Girl by Aqua plays on an infinite goddamn loop in the background. Jerry Sullivan opened up the podcast with this gem. Well, I'm not like fans. I walk in here and one of the fans said, Jigster, I kind of like the guy. I mean, you don't even know him. And oh, I kind of like the guy. Sorry, I'm the I I'm, like him, I'm the universal, and you like do him. too. Like, I'm kinda the universal like skeptic. Hey, I'll give you a quick quick synopsis. 2001, my first year as the Bills' full-time columnist, replacing the great Larry Felser, a 42-year-old defensive coordinator, rising guy with a good resume, had just lost a Super Bowl, comes in, guns blazing, everyone likes him. His name was Greg Williams. Mm-hmm. All right, so I feel like I've come full circle on this. And, you know, I don't really care about his defensive statistics, and they're already being spun more positively than they should be. It's, it's just another Bills coaching hiring that is very uninspiring. And the bigger picture is he's walking into a bad situation with a weak general manager and a bad salary cap situation, much like Greg Williams walked into and went 3-13 and because Don O had, as he would tell you, he was left with a pile of, of you know, big contracts by John, the late John Butler. And that would be the situation if they had done the right thing and hired another general manager instead of Doug Whaley because he's putting McDermott's walking into a difficult situation. Drew, how do you get a job interview as a coordinator? Are you fucking kidding me? Fuck you, Jerry Sullivan. How do you get a job as a coordinator? How do you get a head coaching job? It's based on what you're, you do at your position. Defensive coordinator. I don't care about his defensive stats that he finished in the top 10 four of his six years. Fuck off, Jerry Sullivan. I don't understand it. His stats are being overblown. 
Yet Jerry doesn't bother explaining what that's supposed to mean in any more detail. Then you you have the balls to compare a guy who's never held the position of head coach to Greg Williams, simply because he's young and he just came off a Super Bowl. You sure know how to rile people up, Jerry. (laughs) We get that you're not a fan of anything that goes on here in Buffalo, but this type of inflammatory bullshit is just lazy journalism. If you're going to be a negative asshole about everything, at least put some effort into it. I swear to Christ, Will Ferrell said it best. You're a big, fat, curly-headed fuck. The only redeeming quality of this, this podcast by Tim Graham, and the only reason I even started listening to it, was an appearance by Pro Football Talk and former uh, a writer for Pro Football Talk and former Carolina Panthers beat writer Darren Gant, who has some legitimate insight because he's followed him as to you know, kind of what Sean McDermott's all about, and he stopped into the podcast to give his two cents. Well, I, I think I don't know. I heard you guys when I was coming on talking about the process and what might have led them to this point. I don't know if they interviewed everybody or all the sexy names, but what I know is that Sean McDermott's a really good football coach, and, and I think he is a guy who, in the right situation, can be a really successful head coach in the NFL. And he's got a lot of Ron Rivera in him to me, in that it took him a while to get the opportunity. I think in the right situation, he's going to do well. That audio that we got, that you had me get, that, I can only imagine that all these assholes are sitting around a table in the AdPro Sports Center at at the Bill Stadium, and Tim Graham brought his Fisher-Price microphone from the 80s. Oh, their podcast their sounds quality like is shit. <laughs> that but, irritated the hell out of me. Well, I'm having to listen to this horse shit audio quality at one point they cut off in like they were choppy they were cutting off in mid-sentences but podcasting production aside there's a guy in darren gant who's actually followed sean mcdermott's career and put some effort into getting to know some things about him and just spoke frankly about what he thought about the coach that has to make people here feel a little bit better right i mean if you want to follow the jerry sullivan and bucky gleason's of the world then then good for you i can't stop you but there's a guy who knows what he knows about this guy because he spent his career following him. It sounds like he at least has the ability to check off a number of boxes for things, which we as fans have been calling for change. The first is attention to detail. Fewer penalties. You know what I mean? That's what I'm thinking. Right out of the box. Fewer penalties for too many men or, or only having 10 defenders on the friggin' field to let up game-winning drives. You won't see that anymore with Sean McDermott because he's a very detail-oriented guy. The second is communication and preparation. By all accounts, the guy can put together a decent game plan, and he communicates well. I mean, he he talks well. He's he's concise. He means what he he doesn't backtrack on the things that he says or try to waffle or that was my takeaway from the press conference was that he didn't change his tune. He just kept saying, "This is what I'm about. This is why I'm here." I like that. And by all accounts, from everything I've read, he has the ability to communicate, which Rex Ryan, I mean, under him, anything, everything on defense looked like a Benny Hill sketch. I mean, there was people running around. No one knew where to be. Sean McDermott seems to be the polar opposite of that. And accountability. Sean McDermott's been able to maximize the effort of the guys under his, under his coaching. And... I feel like that was something that was lacking from the Buffalo Bills last year. 
When you look at the talent we have on defense versus the production that we actually got. Chris, do you disagree? No, I don't. I mean, I mean, for me, the whole hire is like I, I kind of get what Jerry Sullivan's saying. I don't say it's an uninspiring hire, but I mean, we fire coaches or they quit every two to three years. So, in my head, I just am used to it, and I'm expecting McDermott to be gone in three years. Well, Chris, you can't look at it like that. You got to be. You got to look at it on the bright side. I mean. This is a guy we we've suffered for two full years of you know what we thought we, we were close before, and it almost felt like we backslid under Rex Ryan. And now with Sean McDermott, I mean, it's change. It's change in what feels like the right direction, and that's what's the most important thing. Is we need a change. We have to have a, whether it's culture change, whether it's a change in philosophies, the change has to happen. And considering we're here to talk about the change, who better to get together with and chat this all up? than one of our dearest podcasting friends. Break it down. Eric Turner. An idiot. The bridge between the stats and the X's and O's. Let me break it down for you so you understand. Cover1.net. Eric Turner, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric <laughs> Turner from Cover1.net. How are you doing tonight? Fantastic, guys. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Anytime, man. I know. I appreciate you. You've been a busy guy lately. Yeah. Uh, nonstop, nonstop. Every day I try to try to get something out there for Bills fans. And, uh, and uh, you know, you guys uh, definitely helped me do that. So thanks for having me on. For the sheer amount of content that you generate, I, 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 I sometimes see it come out at 1 o'clock in the morning. So, <laughs> sometimes I see you tweeting at people at 2 a.m. It's like, dude, when do you sleep? You know, I get asked that quite often. But like I say, <laughs> sleep's the cousin of death. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys. So there's a lot of changes. I mean, obviously, we just talked about a lot of them, but let's take a look at I mean, one of the first things I want to touch on here, the coaching staff. Okay, so now we know who Sean McDermott is. We've talked about it. He's, he's made a number of hires since he's been here already, and even though the, the coaching staff isn't fully fleshed out yet, there's a trend that you can see when you look at the different names that he's brought in or retained. I mean, first off, Danny Crossman, special teams coach. Staying. Uh, now, yes. he, was, he was here last year. He brings with him a familiarity of the, the players with the, some of the rest of the staff here. And he's had past success in fielding very strong coverage units. I mean, I, th- I mean, Eric, how do you think our special teams units fared last season? Last year, it seemed like they started off strong, but they kind of trailed off. Uh, according to Football Outsiders, they mm-hmm. were ranked 25th uh, in, in DVOA uh, special team stats. So, uh, you know, they did start off strong. They finished uh, not so well. Um, and the one thing I do need to see better from Danny Crossman and, and, and the special teams units is our drive starts, you know, after, after kickoffs. Last year, we averaged a drive start at the 24.5-yard line. So, I mean, we need to, you need to get better in that department. you got to help our offense a little more. I mean, that was 21st in the NFL. So it is nice to bring him back because of the fami- familiarity and whatnot. But um, he does need to improve or else, you know, they, they may have to go in a different direction in the future. We also need players to be back there to catch the kickoff. True. Sometimes they'll just be like, oh, O'Leary, you got it? Oh, Gilly, you got it? Let's just let it roll into the end zone and not touch it. Right. Knowing the rule is, uh, is a good place to start, right? Well, I guess one of the biggest takeaways for me is that, I, I mean, and you are right, and on top of the kickoff, uh, you know, you're talking about drive starts, Colt, Colton Schmidt had a down season last year. 
He you did. Know, he, he came in strong in 2015, but last year his his play kind of trailed off. It's going to be on Danny Crossman to figure out how to how to get better how to get better play out of the guy. But I think the most important thing with Danny Crossman is his familiarity with our friend Reed Ferguson, <laughs> who who will be back on a, who has already signed his futures contract and will be back for training camp next year. That's awesome. That's great to hear. He seems like a nice guy. So the next the next hire that I found kind of intriguing was linebackers coach Bob Babbage. The guy's got 14 years of NFL experience, was a former defensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears. He had decent results while he was working with Chicago and while he was working with the Rams. And he's familiar with both 4-3 and hybrid linebacking schemes. I mean, that's that, that, that would seem, for a rookie coach, that's a pretty solid hire. You know? Yeah, I, I agree. Babich is a, is a good hire. He's got the experience. Uh, he's got the experience in, you know, the traditional cover two defense and working the linebackers and how to, you know, get the most out of those coverage type linebackers in Lovey Smith system. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, he also became the D, uh, D coordinator when uh, Gus Bradley took over in Jacksonville a few years ago in 2013, where we all know, you know, more of their scheme is the Seattle Lake scheme or more of cover three. Mm-hmm. But um, he didn't have as much success uh, there as well. And if you look at, at some of his stats, um, as far as his defenses and, and he's, mm-hmm. you know, defenses he's been a part of, they haven't, they're underwhelming. Honestly, I, I don't, I mean, when he was in Jacksonville, he didn't have a defense that was better than 24th in yards, uh, given up. So, um, as far as coaching linebackers, he's coached some good ones though. I mean, he helped develop, uh, develop Telvin Smith, um, for Jacksonville. I mean, mm-hmm. of course he worked with Paz <clears throat> who, uh, you know, st- stabilized his career. He's always been, uh, you know, a productive linebacker, but he helped him, um, in coverage, because that's what something um, Paz wasn't the best at is coverage. So, I mean, he did work some good li- with some good linebackers, and he's worked in several schemes, like you had mentioned. So he he's a he's a good guy um, to bring on to the staff. Those are some excellent points, and you know what? You brought up the Paz thing. I didn't I didn't even think about that. You know what? You're right. When he was here, Pazlesny was the guy who he would make tackles. But not until you'd already gained four and a half yards. Right, right. He's kind of London Fletcher-esque guy. Who could put out numbers in the tackle department, but uh, they're usually on your side of the line of scrimmage. Yeah. So to, to know that he's got familiarity with taking linebackers who have maybe underwhelmed or underperformed and at least getting them to be average NFL players. I don't know. That, 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 I think that bodes well. I mean, like I said, his, his experience alone is what I like. Just the right. fact that the guy's got experience. Kind of like our next uh, coach here, defensive line coach Mike Waffle. 20 years of NFL coaching experience. He coached the Giants defensive line from 2004 to 2009. He had two teams beat the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. That first win was absolutely, I mean, if they could have given out for that first Giants win over the Patriots, if they could have given out a MVP trophy to a group of individuals, it should have gone to the defensive line. I think we can all agree on that, right? No doubt, no doubt. And then most recently, he went on to coach the uh, Rams, who, again, they are considered, they are a very highly regarded 4-3 defensive line. And he also dominated Hard Knocks, for those that have HBO. (laughs) (laughs) Great sound bites from him on that show, huh? Well, no, again, I I, I think that he's, he's another guy, kind of in this Babbage mold. I don't, you know, he's got some accolades, got a lot of experience. You know, that's Definitely. that's the thing that catches my eye. Juan Castillo, offensive line coach, run game coordinator, 16 years of NFL experience. And he's coached guys like Coletio Semele or Marshall Yanda. 
Now, the I know here locally on the WGR 550 and other local media outlets, they're making a lot about Juan Castillo. People are kind of down on him. I mean, I don't see any reason for it. Do you know? I know. He, he uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but didn't he take over for McDermott as the defensive coordinator when he left for Carolina? Right. He, uh, he's been a coach on both sides of the ball, and a lot of people – um, who don't really know football will say, you know, they, they kind of look at that and, and, and question it because, um, you know, how come he wouldn't stay on the same side of the ball? Well, I mean, I asked a few sources, one of them being a, a guy that uh, coached for the, uh, in the NFL for many years as an offensive line coach. And I asked him, first of all, when we hired him, what is, he, what is he, his philosophy? What kind of run blocking schemes does he bring? What type of pass blocking schemes does he run? And, you know, he told me that his main philosophy is outside zone runs and naked bootlegs. You know, something like uh, like you're going to see this weekend with the Shanahan's where you're going to they're going to run a lot of outside zone to the running backs and then, you know, pull the ball and, and get on the edge in the perimeter and throw, throw those uh, bootleg passes, naked bootlegs and whatnot. Um, so I, I asked him if that's an advantage to having coached on um, both sides of the ball. And he said, absolutely. Absolutely. Because not only are um is that he going to be teaching the uh, you know offensive line techniques, but he's also going to be te- teaching the techniques of the defense and what you know each defender that they're going to be playing against each week, what type of moves they're going to be bringing. So I, I, I mean I do see the insight there and the advantage that um, bringing a guy like Castillo in, um, who obviously has worked um, on a you know McDermott type staff and worked with guys and in, in the system that McDermott probably is you know planning on the, to bring to the Bills on the offensive side of the ball. So I, I see everything as a positive. I don't see it as a negative at all. Well, I, I was going to say, I think a lot of people around here could be a little bit butthurt by this hire, considering when you go back to the Rex hire, you didn't keep Jim Schwartz, and then our defense right. failed. And That's a good point. Our run game was the where we got all of our offense. And so now it's we no longer have Aaron Cromer, who did a, I thought he did a great job with our O-line. Right in, in a run game, so I think people may be a little bit butthurt about that. Like well, what you're I bringing feel, in Castillo and getting I don't know rid about of that, Cromer. But one thing I have been thinking since the Castillo hire is that I was really impressed with the job that Aaron Cromer was able to do with um, Cyrus Quanjo. Quanjo. When Quanjo was drafted. Mm-hmm. I love the pick because I'm a homer for Alabama, but but, but even more. <laughs> so you're the only one. Then. Yeah, I'm the only one who liked that pick. <laughs> yeah, but but it made sense where we took him. We're like, oh, here's this big guy. He's a tackle, but he's got this knee problem. Right. Well, the knee problem isn't so much the issue. It's just been that his technique was so poor because he was so used to playing left tackle, and they were trying to mold him in this. Hey, we're gonna make a right tackle out of you. And right. With and if you know anything about playing offensive line. There's a difference between your post foot and your outside foot and where your leverage Mm -hmm. comes from and everything else. This season was the first season he's ever really been given a crack at playing left tackle. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a guy who was at one point referred to as Venus DeMilo. And yet he's he came in this season and played really well as a backup. You're right. And he was drafted, you know, um, at a time when we needed uh, a right tackle mm-hmm. and he fit the mold of what, you know, that staff was trying to put on the field as far as offensive line goes. Mm-hmm. And you're right. He did have, I think it was his left knee that was surgically repaired yep. and they had him playing right tackle. Mm-hmm. And as you'd mentioned, the post leg is your left leg. So from right tackle, that is where you're driving. And 
if you're you're kick sliding uh, in pass pro, yep. your post leg is where you generate all your power to kick slide. So mm-hmm. uh, if if there is any kind of structural issues, which from um, you know during the draft, that's a lot of guys, a lot of teams, you know, took him off the board because of those red flags and and uh, and his medicals. So um, you know the CML left tackle this year, and I studied him very closely uh, recently. And uh, to Cromer's credit, over the years, he did a fantastic job with him. Um, so, yes, it was, you know, hard to see uh, Cromer replaced because I was his biggest fan. I honestly thought he was probably the number one teacher on this on this team, uh, on the staff from the last two years. He was you could see the development and progress in guys like Cyrus Guanjo. Yeah, and that's and so that's why I look at this hire and I say, OK, I don't see it necessarily as a terrible thing. But it's nah, you know, it's one of those things that you just you feel it. You're like, oh God, you know, we did lose a good coach here. Yeah, I agree. And, and then on defensive coordinator, Leslie Frazier, you bring in Leslie Frazier, former head coach of the Vikings from 2010 to 2013. He's got experience as a secondaries coach and also as a defensive coordinator, and he was part of the Bears Super Bowl Shuffle video. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. When I look at Leslie, the Leslie Frazier hire, <clears throat> I don't know what to think of it because I guess I didn't get to see enough of him as a defensive coordinator to really know. I saw what he was as a head coach. He's a guy right. who made one run. One run, got the playoffs, didn't make anything happen, and then was fired after three seasons. Right. So I mean, as, as far as a head coach, he was hired as a head coach in, what, 2010? Yep. Was it 2010? 2010. I mean – but he worked as what the D coordinator of the Vikings prior to that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those years within, in, yeah. in in Minnesota from what 2008, if I'm looking at this correctly, 2008 to 2010 when he took over. I mean, he did have uh, a, a top ten defense in all three of those years. So, mm-hmm. as a coordinator, uh, I mean, this was years ago. I know that, but as a coordinator, he seemed to uh, you know have it together. Uh, as of course, as a head coach, uh, that can go the other direction but mm-hmm. uh, as as far as his defenses uh they kind of fall in line the scheme falls in line with mcdermott and um i, I did a little research on you know what he likes to play and mm-hmm. um it's it's more of a cover two defense it is it, it's more of a cover two um but he does mix it up you got to think about you know like the mike zimmers and 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 that type of scheme where they show a lot of cover two but it's not always cover two it's not a typical cover two or tampa two like mm-hmm. we're used to seeing of, of of years past so i do like him uh as a coordinator uh of course how else they round out the staff especially uh with the secondary coaches that's that's where i think we're going to see the biggest change uh in this defense oh absolutely and again leslie frazier he's been coaching at an nfl level since 1999 yeah so Ultimately, just to kind of give an overview of this. Now, I know this is only a handful of hires, and there's still a lot more hires probably coming in the next week or two. But ultimately, what I see out of this group and what I get, I can see what McDermott's doing. He's saying, Mm -hmm. okay, I am a first-time head coach. I'm a young guy. I haven't been in the NFL for that long, but I've had some success. And I know that if I'm going to continue to succeed, the way I'm seeing these hires line up is that in his mind, he's thinking – I need to surround myself with guys who have done it all, guys who have seen it all, guys who have been to places I haven't been, guys who have stood on this sideline, maybe lost a lot. I mean, think about how many he's got one former D coordinator, 
a former offensive and former defensive coordinator. He's got uh, a, a D-line coach who has two Super Bowl rings. He's got Danny Crossman, who was here before and who has a track record of getting you know, good, good special teams play. Right. And then Leslie Frazier, again, another guy who stood there on that sideline and knows what it's like to try to call a game. He's surrounding himself with as much experience as he can get his hands on, which I think is a, it's a very smart play. Hey, of, I love it. Of these hires, is there one that particularly stands out to you? Because for me, it's Mike Waffle. Because I'm interested to see what he could do with Darius on and off the field. I would have to agree with you there. I, I think that's the type of coach that has to be at that position. Um, and it was a, it was great to address it with a stern disciplinarian um, mm-hmm. who has experience and uh, has really good teaching skills and getting the best and most out of his players. And when you have a guy like Marcel Darius on that defensive line who is – you know, highest paid player, uh, one of the highest paid players on your team, and he needs structure. Well, guess what? He's getting it, and and mm-hmm. it's it's a good move by the Bills and, and McDermott. I think that was. I would have to agree with you on that. I think Mike Waffles the guy. So moving on, talking about changes. The changes they are coming. Talk about team philosophy. Now this is why, and Eric, this is this is why I love having you as a resource, <laughs> a guy I can turn to because. I study football, I love the game, and yet I don't see half of the shit that you put together. Like, I just don't see it when I watch it the first couple times. And then you'll put out a video, and I just, it makes sense. So you were the perfect person to come in here and talk with us about how our philosophies are going to change. I mean, right now we don't have an offensive coordinator, but we're going to break it down by offense and defense. And defense is where we're going to start. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're looking at a whole different animal here. Definitely. uh, we're shifting back to a 4-3, which is a very drastic change from what we've seen over the last two years. But I don't think that that's a bad thing. I mean, we had two of our most productive seasons playing in that type of a defense. I, I think one of the things that we'll lament the most is when you see this move back to a 4-3 defense, you're going to realize guys like Nigel Bradham. You know, why do you think of, oh, a cornerback like uh, Ron Brooks and a linebacker like Nigel Bradham, who Bills fans were down on, got snapped up so quickly by Jim Schwartz when he got to Philadelphia. There's a Mm -hmm. reason, because in this type of a defense, they do have value. Right. So I guess we'll start with the defensive line. I mean, the the whole concept of what the defensive line has been for the last two seasons is about to change. I think the most basic of all changes, and this is the biggest one, is that we're going from a two-gap blocking system on the defensive line to a very attacking one-gap concept right now who do you think stands to benefit the most from this change well i would like to say uh, i would say the interior um of course if kyle and, and and is coming back um those two guys kyle and darius um can wreak havoc uh, in the middle so much so that it makes the guys on the outsides you know uh, lawson and hughes jobs that much easier so and that's something that mcdermott does with his scheme he uh, had guys in Carolina that, you know, in Kawan Short and Star Latulale that could occupy, you know, three offensive linemen up the middle and, you know, attack with those outside defensive ends one-on-one on tackles. And when you have the speed that Hughes has and that first step, because um, he's not, the, he doesn't have the best technique as far as pass rush moves go, but he relies on that first step. So a guy like Hughes can get back into his double-digit sacks um, uh, you know, in this scheme. So I do think um, the defensive line overall, I think, is going to be a big uh, 
big difference maker as, as long as Kyle Williams is back. And that's a big if. Well, one of the things that I, I note is that having Marcel, Marcel Darius, I, I mean, people bagged, bagged on me for wearing the jersey, bagged on oh, all season. I heard it when I was sitting in the stands. People were heckling me. Where's your boy? Where's your boy? Marcel Darius, I feel like in this defense that we've watched for the last two seasons, his talents are kind of wasted. You cannot, but he's, he is at his best, not as a zero technique nose tackle, where he's just supposed to eat up space. You know, mm-hmm. he, that's not his strength. You can put him as a two gap defensive lineman and have him trying to you know play the off shoulder of the center and you know t- try to take up a center and a guard at the same time. And he did that okay, which is why I think Kyle had the season he had because mm-hmm. everyone was willing. They're saying, okay, this player's older; he must be losing a step. We're going to consistently roll towards Darius. And Kyle was able to beat one-on-one protection. But in a 4-3, that suits Darius' strengths the best. Because he is that guy who if you try to, you know, if he can shoot a gap, if you can find a gap, you can try to double-team him. But eh, I feel like if he has that first step into the gap, I mean, that's the thing that got Marcel Darius that fat contract, was his ability to get behind the line of scrimmage off the snap. Right in the in the system we've been running for the last two years, that that ability was kind of wasted. I feel like this is going to get yeah, him definitely. playing back at a high level, and if he does that, the entire defensive line is going to thrive around that. There's no doubt about it, and he'll play that role that Starlo Tulele mm-hmm. uh, played, and and he'll still be lined up as more of a shade. So that means you know just off the shoulder of the center, mm-hmm. in between the center and guard. Uh, he'll still play that similar type of role. He won't be a zero tech. He won't be heads up over the center, but he'll still ha- he'll have an ability now to just pin his ears back and attack. So yeah, they may double team him, but he still has the ability and the re- uh, responsibility of occupying that gap, but also attacking now and not having to worry about containment. Uh, you know whether it's up the middle or, or fanning out to to cover one of the C gaps or anything like that. So he'll have um, less responsibility as far as contain goes. He'll be able to just pin his ears back and attack, and I think, you know, that that philosophy along the D line is just gonna. I mean, we've seen it, you know, in years past under Petten, under Schwartz, that mm-hmm. these guys will thrive in that. And guys, and I mentioned Jerry Hughes, he'll have a lot more freedom to freestyle, and this whole D line will all together because, you know, they're not worried about certain, um, you know, certain gaps in pass rushes. They can mm-hmm. play off each other. They can freestyle. You know, if they see one, uh, if the D tackles going uh, high, a high rush outside. You know, our DNs can loop back inside. So they have that freedom to freestyle. And guys, uh, defensive linemen love that responsibility and that type of freedom in a system like this. Oh, absolutely. Now, you're mentioning Jerry Hughes, and you said he might be the biggest beneficiary of this change. But I'll be honest, you know who I think you're going to see is Adolphus Washington. Now, Mm -hmm. I know he's a third-round pick from last year who hasn't really proven anything at the NFL level. Last season, about week six or seven, I think we were going into, and we were talking about the statistic that was being thrown around that Adolphus Washington, you figured last draft was supposed to be loaded at D-tackle. You know, it was a very deep draft for defensive line play. Mm-hmm. And we took Adolphus Washington in the third round, but he was leading all rookie players in the NFL against the run up until week six or seven. Right. So... The guy has, and the thing was, that wasn't even supposed to be his forte. His forte was supposed to be as kind of a one-gap penetrating D-tackle. Mm-hmm. So now you're putting him in a scheme that lends itself to the thing that he was supposed to be good at. 
I feel like if anybody's going to thrive, it's going to be him. And I think he's going to see more playing time because, as you pointed out, I don't know that Kyle Williams is long for this roster. I mean, you're talking about a 30, what is he now, 33? A 33-year-old defensive tackle who has, last season, his, his season ended early with an ankle injury. This season, down the stretch, his back was his back was bothering him so much that he couldn't practice. He still tried to play through games, but he couldn't practice throughout the week, which is a problem. But that's mm-hmm. that, that's an inevitability. If you play football in the NFL, eventually you will wear down, especially a position like D tackle. So he's due eight point three million dollars mm-hmm. next season against our cap, and we only incur I think it's less than two million dollars of dead money if we cut him. Uh, don't say that. Do I, no, not, no, and no, and you know no. what? I, I, no. I, I cringe at the thought. And we talked about it during our preseason, our preseason show. I said, I'm like, it, it makes me almost sick to think about it. That this might be the last time, whether he, whether we like it or not, whether he likes it or not, that we see Kyle Williams in a Bills uniform. I don't, I don't think that would be a smart move at all. Uh, he was our best player. Oh, absolutely. Last year. Oh, I absolutely. Mean, and, of course, when we didn't have him the, the year prior, we lost a ton of leadership, we lost a ton of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, I think switching to this scheme is the part of the reason why it's such a good thing is rotation and depth. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Adolphus Washington. We have Jarrell Worthy under contract. Mm-hmm. Those, and Kyle Williams. Those are, those are three. We're three deep at three tech, basically, is mm-hmm. what you're saying in this defense. Yep. That's a good rotation habit at three <clears throat> tech penetrating D tackle. Um, I do think... Drell Worthy fits the three tech a little better right mm-hmm. now than Adolphus Washington, but just think about the depth that we had gained by just going to a th- uh, the four three here. So, oh, absolutely, I, we got I way mean, deeper. We, we asked him to take what a contract cut or uh, a pay cut already. Um, so I would stay. I'd stay right where we're at right now with Kyle Williams. Um, I I would not even think about you know even trying to negotiate anything else. Hey, listen, but you're you're I, preaching to the choir, man. I hope you're right. right. I hope you're right. And then we're gonna move on to linebacker. So this is another position where your, your responsibilities have drastically changed. Drastically changed. I know that you've put out a lot of different you – know, you're already working on it. That's what I love about this guy. <laughs> For everyone out there listening, Eric Turner never stops working. <laughs> he's always got something. I love this stuff. I love the access and those, man. So he's breaking this down, and I'm looking at linebacker coverage in a 4-3 compared to what we've been trying to run for the last two seasons and the talent <laughs> that we've kind of put together at that position. The first thing that jumps out to me is coverage responsibilities. They change drastically. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a 3-4 defense, standard 3-4, what we were trying to run under Rex, it's on the outside linebacker to, sh- to kind of, uh, I guess, watch the flat. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If there's a pass to the flat to the running back, that's the responsibility of the outside linebacker to get out there and make that play. Right. Well, now in a 4-3 defense, you've got four D, you've got four D linemen You've got linebackers who are a little bit farther away from the offensive line and who don't necessarily have the like you have to come from almost an inside linebacker position, but you have to find a way to stay clean. You know what I mean? You you can't trust that those linemen in front of you are just going to eat those blocks and let you make a play. And I feel like that added responsibility. I mean, you look at what we have and then you also have to worry about tight ends in space. That's going to be, I think, Preston Brown is, I mean, who do we even have under contract right now, Eric? I don't even know. <laughs> that's, that's what scares me, honestly. This position is obviously what scares me in this defense. And there are ways to 
uh, compensate for guys like Preston Brown, who aren't known for coverage. Um, who knows where uh, w- what we're going to do with Zach Brown. But um, guys like Preston Brown, are, they typically would struggle in this type of scheme, whether it's just a, a traditional cover two or um, even if he did more man coverage. If, if Sean McDermott went back to more of his Jim Johnson days where they're you know, they were playing a lot of a lot more man on the outside and pattern matching on the outside, which we did in, in the last year. You know, we played a lot of man, a lot of pattern matching. And mm-hmm. we had to do that, honestly, to hide Preston Brown in coverage, because if you're playing that much man, your your linebacker, Preston Brown, is going to be exposed in coverage versus, uh, you know, usually the third or fourth option, typically a running back or yep. or whatnot out of the backfield. So they're going to have to find out, find ways to um I don't want to say hide, but ways to comp- compensate for a guy like Preston Brown, who typically wouldn't fit in this system, especially if Fraglin comes back 100% and he mans the middle of this defense. Uh, having Preston Brown play Will or Sam in this defense uh, could create coverage issues uh, unless McDermott can somehow mm-hmm. straighten out the secondary, with which in itself is, uh, is going to be a, a struggle in, you know, with that uh, unit right now. You just mentioned him, and I hear it from Drew all the time, but I, I, I need the homerisms taken out of it. Where, okay. where do you see Reggie Ragland in this 4-3-D? Oh, man. It, again, it depends on how McDermott approaches it. Honestly, I would like to see him at Mike uh, just because of, uh, you know, he's going to be playing the call in the plays. But he, my number one knock on him coming out last year was coverage. He was taken out of um, on defense uh, in his last year at Alabama. He only played like 80 or 81% of the, the snaps because he struggled in coverage. Again, as a coach, you can scheme ways to protect these guys and compensate. But guess what? The other team's getting paid to find those holes. And a guy like him could be exposed as well. I, do I think he's a little more athletic and rangy than Preston Brown? I do. I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but I do think that he's, uh, he's quicker and his diagnosed skills are better than Preston Brown, so, that, so much so that he can, uh, you know, get to certain holes uh, or landmarks in his own defense. So uh, I would like to see him in the middle, but depending on what McDermott does as far as scheming uh, with his secondary, because that's going to be the key. Uh, everything underneath that's covered by these linebackers depends on what's deep, because that's what killed us last year. We got beat deep a lot last year. In an effort not to just not to just cut you off because mm-hmm. that's you're see this is why I love having you on the show because you just come with just stuff that oh god <laughs> but I'm over here chewing on the neck of my beer bottle right now because I'm hearing you talk about Reggie Ragland I've watched every snap the kids played here's my takeaway about Reggie Ragland and yes you you're talking about removing the homerism from it you're talking about how he got pulled <laughs> off the field because of his limited pass coverage where where's your right. t- where's your like toism that's my linebacker <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I will say. Reggie Ragland, to me, you're right. He does not have top-end speed, and that is going to hurt him in this defense. I mean, when I look at him, I think of a guy like Ray Malaluga. You know, I'm seeing a linebacker who has limited pass coverage skills because of his lack of top-end speed. You know, he's mm-hmm. not a C.J. Mosley. He's not Illich Ogletree or any one of the other great linebackers that came out of the SEC who are doing well in the NFL that I've mm-hmm. watched play and said, oh, shit, that's a three-down linebacker. No, right. Raglan's not that guy. But what he is, and you touched on it, is instinctive as hell. 
And so, like, there, there's a hit out there online. You can go find it. He finds current Patriots wide receiver Malcolm Mitchell, a game against Georgia. I, he, I do remember that. He tracks the pass, knows where, <laughs> but he knows where it's going to be. So he right. takes off to take the angle on it before the quarterback even throws it. And he, right, and that was the play. He uh, he laid a lick on him, right? He oh, dropped, it was he ridiculous. Was, he dropped. He carried the the seam route, and then he was. Uh, the, the route by Mitchell was coming across mm-hmm. the middle, I believe, and he just laid him out, right? Oh, absolutely. He destroyed yeah. The kid had the catch, and then he got destroyed and dropped the football. I do remember f- that. And what that shows, and there's, he's made a, probably four or five dozen other plays like that over his career. Mm-hmm. He has the instinct to play that position. You know, you're right. He's not the fastest guy in the field, and he's never going to be. But as a Mike linebacker in this system, like I said, a Ray Malaluga, maybe a little bit more athletic than that. Mm-hmm. And just his instinct for where to be and when to be there is what bails him out as far as an early down, second down. I can see them taking him off the field in a third down. I can. Because if it's a true passing situation, yes, I could see him becoming a liability. But I do think he has a he can play a prominent role in this defense. It's just going to be tough because who is that third linebacker? I mean, I think going into this draft, that's a thing that they have to have on their mind. This draft, this free agent period, you've got to find a will linebacker because somewhere you've got to add speed. And right now, we just don't have it. You're right. So then, oh, wait, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, McDermott, he did have quite the talent. In Carolina, at the linebacking core, you know Thomas Davis, and Luke Keekley, Thomas Davis, Shaq Luke Keekley. You're right, and Shaq Thompson, and those are guys that have range. Mm-hmm. And typically, in a Ron Rivera type system, when you're speaking of cover two, you got to have those rangy linebackers. But again, McDermott, that's what's great about his knowledge and and the time he's put in and experience he's gained is he's learned from cover two schemes, but he's also learned from you know man coverage schemes that uh, uh, like to apply a lot of pressure with Jim Johnson. So he's gained a wealth of knowledge and how he evaluates, like he said in his press conference, how he evaluates this roster is going to be the key. So do we play cover two more? We don't know that. I mean, a lot of people think that in Carolina, they played more of a cover two, but last year they were a cover three team. Mm -hmm. So they used the cover two shell as a disguise to, uh, to confuse quarterbacks, pre-snap to post-snap and they drop one of those safeties down and guess what? Now we're in a cover three. So, and that brings how us, he chooses, well, how say, he chooses to evaluate this uh, roster will be the key. And you're right; we do need to find another linebacker, regardless. Well, and that brings us right to our next topic: the secondary. Now, you're talking cover three defense, okay? For people out there who don't know at home, in layman's terms, cover two defense is when you have two deep safeties who each one has the responsibility of one half of the field. Your cornerbacks try to keep the play in front of them, playing usually a zone. Am I correct? You, know, you, you yep. just play zone or man underneath, but ultimately right. you have those two deep safeties behind you, and mm-hmm. one, each one is responsible for 50% of the field. Right. In a cover three defense, though, and this is the defense that got Carolina to the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. is that they like to throw in what's called a robber. That's where you have another defensive back somewhere in there, or you have a cornerback who maybe, you know, especially because we, there's so much nickel that gets played in today's NFL. Mm-hmm. You have another defensive back who you've got two guys playing those deep those deep halves, but there's an underneath guy who's just waiting. Just waiting for you to throw the ball somewhere you shouldn't. Right. And I, I feel like that right there 
I like the sound of it. I like the way it sounds. It makes it sound like our turnover numbers could go up playing in that kind of a system. But then I'm going to ask myself, do we have the talent on hand to pull that off right now? I, do I don't you know. Honestly, I, it, it all depends. There's so much, you know, so much riding on this Gilmore decision, too. And Aaron Williams, uh, you know, apparently he's coming back because you got to have um, two safeties that can are interchangeable. It's kind of like Rex Ryan and his system where he, he liked to put corners back there because they have to be able to fill in the run. But they also have to be able to cover. So they, they, the term is rock and roll. So if there's motion uh, by a slot receiver from one side, instead of having him motion, with, uh, having a safety motion with him, they'll just rock and roll the safety, rotate the safeties, and he's got to be able to cover that slot guy. Yep. So where uh, where we go at the safety position is a big uh, concern of mine, and of course Gilmore and that decision. Honestly, if you have Gilmore on the outside and Ronald Darby on the outside in this cover three system. With how we run, how they like to run trap coverages and disguise, which that's that's the league now. You have to be able to disguise coverage because all the good teams play simple defense. There are coverages and techniques that are very simple. They're repped a lot. Every situation is repped, and guys know what they're supposed to do, and they just play fast. And that's what this system is, which is and it's great. And and we've played in a system like this with Schwartz and had success. So. That secondary is in, in, you know, in flux right now, and where they decide to go in the draft and in free agency, like you said, it's going to make a it's going to make a big deal in this uh, in this scheme. Now I know that we don't know what's looming with with Gilmore, but we did draft somebody last year, Kevon Seymour. Mm-hmm. How does he fit into this defense? That's a great question because coming out of college, out of from USC. He was more of a man cover corner, you know, and I asked him uh, as soon as McDermott was hired, I asked him, you know, where do you think you fit in this defense? He says, you know, I'm used to having coaches, uh, having, you know, turnover in coaches. I'll be fine in this scheme. Whatever they teach me, I'll pick up quickly. They had me learn, uh, you know, the slot, uh, the nickel position this year, which is something he's never really done. And he said it took him a couple weeks to pick up on the techniques and different ways that receivers are going to attack him, you know, on two way goes and whatnot. And he said, you know what? I'm not worried. I, he takes the coaching well. That's what's good about him. He takes the coaching well. And there's no doubt he has a physical talent to run with anyone in the league. So, when, again, who they bring in as a DB coach or whether they keep the guys that are there, that's going to be key because the techniques that are used in this defense are quite simple, but they are repped and how well the guys pick up on it. you know. And, and I know you, had, you guys had talked about Darby and where does he fit in this? He's not good in off coverage. No, typically he's not. You know, he's more of a cover corner, more of a, you know, closer to the line of scrimmage type guy. But, you know, how they teach him and how they stay on top of him and his technique will be the deciding factor, how well guys like that uh, succeed in the system. I'll tell you, man, you make it sound an awful lot like there's a ton riding on whoever we pick as our secondary coach. It, I mean, that's one of those positions that it's, it's a game of inches. And uh, when you have when your guys are on islands like that or um, are one-on-one a lot, you know, how their technique is repped and, and, and taught is I'm, I'm a big, I'm big on teaching. And that position suffered last year when, you know, the year before when we were blitzing a lot and putting pressure on, on um, opposing quarterbacks, those guys thrive. You know, the Gilmores, the Darby's thrive because we had to blitz because our, our front four couldn't get to the quarterback. So, yeah. When you see a defense like this that McDermott runs, he runs a lot of trap coverages, and he creates pressure with that front four, 
I think guys like Gilmore and Darby, it plays to their strengths because they want to squat on routes. They want to jump routes and be aggressive. And I think if a guy like Gilmore's back in this scheme, I mean, I think he'll get what he got five interceptions this year. I think he can get seven or more in this, honestly. I'll be honest. I think my favorite feature of this new defense is going to be the A-gap blitzing. I haven't seen enough of that out of the Bills, but I see, I've see i watched the Vikings do it in the past. They mm-hmm. did it this season, and it was incredible to watch because I feel like that's something that we've struggled on, especially with the quarterbacks. You, know, you look at Tom Brady. What is the one thing you know you have to do to Tom Brady? You have to get pressure in his face. Right. How better to do that than an A-gap blitz? That's right. one of Sean McDermott's specialties, but he has to trust that coverage in order to do that. He loves putting two linebackers over the center. And making them try to guess, you know, on offense, who's going to actually come? Are they both coming? Is one coming? Are they both going to drop into coverage? Is it a bluff? He likes to do a lot of that stuff. And that's that's great, but you have to trust that there's going to be sound coverage on the back end in order to do that. So it's going to be huge. And this goes, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this goes back to the linebacker position, though, too, as well, because... You know, you're showing that double-A blitz, and they very rarely actually bring both of them. Mm-hmm. Typically, one of those linebackers Choose one. does blitz. Yeah, usually one <laughs> does blitz. It's a shell game. That's all it is. Your, your guy, Raglan, he's pretty good at blitzing. So he is. who's the guy that's dropping? And that's that's what I'm saying. That, yep. that middle of the field is huge, whether he uh, whether McDermott uh, you know instills the cover two type scheme or cover three. Either way, that middle of that field has to be protected, especially in these double-A gap blitzes. Mm-hmm. So you're right. That double A, it's it's all the rage. I asked Richie Incognito about it the other day. I asked him, I go, hey, man, it seems like a lot of coaches are getting uh, getting jobs on this double A gap pressures. And he goes, yeah, it's awesome. And what he says to me, he goes, but we're, we're really good at picking it up. So I, that doesn't worry me. But I'm like, of course he <laughs> so does. Of course Richie would say that. It was awesome to that. hear from him. <laughs> So there's a lot of changes coming here on defense. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if our current personnel is up to the task. There's a lot of stuff that our, this team is going to have to figure out between the draft, between free agency. There's just a lot of there's a lot of question marks thrown in there. But I'm optimistic about the outcome. I mean, Eric, you agree, right? I do. I do agree. I, I'm very optimistic. I like the direction they're going with the coaching and the staff and um, the personnel is the last piece as far as this offseason goes, so we'll see where they, uh, what direction they head in that. Now, right now on offense, we have no idea what kind of direction they're going to take. That's something that's going to kind of flesh itself out over the course of, I'm assuming, the next week or two. But um, I, we'll see what that, whether that bears fruit or not. And I'm sure that's a conversation for another day that uh, <laughs> we can have Eric back on to go over with us. Eric, I appreciate you taking time out of your night to come hang out with us. No problem, man. I enjoyed it. It's always fun, uh, you know, shooting uh, shooting a breeze with you guys. All right. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, the, the site is cover1.net, and you can find me on Twitter at cover1bills. Fantastic. Guys, go check out his work. I'm telling you, if you, a lot of the terms we threw around tonight, if you don't really get them, go check out his website because I guarantee you learn a thing or two. I learn things every time I go there because – you have no patience. Oh, for I me. have no patience to explain <laughs> football to Chris. <laughs> Eric, you're right, guys. Any of the terms that we, you know, we go over. If, if you're looking to expand your knowledge on football, especially uh, from a Bills perspective, uh, come over to the site. I have videos. I have all types of statistics to to support um, this team and uh, the community. So thanks for the for the plug there, guys. <laughs> Anytime, brother. Thanks for coming by. And with that, guys, we're going to take things in a little bit of a different direction here for the end of the podcast. Now, 
For anyone who's new to the show, or, like myself, drinks enough to possibly affect one's long-term memory, I just I, I want to state this just that we're all on the same page. I am a rabid fan of not just the Buffalo Bills, but of the game of football. NFL, NCAA, high school, I can't get enough of it. From all the individual intricacies that exist within the game itself, which when you first look at the game, the game could seem fairly simplistic at first glance until you really take a look at it. Right up to just the passion of the guys who play it and the fans who support them. I love every second of it. Having said that, the NFL is a business. This isn't anything that we haven't heard before, and you haven't really kind of come to grips with. Over the course of the last decade, we've been given countless reminders of this, whether it be in a front office unceremoniously cutting or trading a player that you love simply to maximize cap space. Kind of like what happened with Fred Jackson here in Buffalo a couple years ago, Chandler Jones or Jamie Collins from the Patriots this season. those, those, Those were effective players who were basically discarded. Or a player being blackballed from the NFL for conduct that quote-unquote tarnishes the shield, as in the Ray Rice case, while other players accused of the same sort of crimes against women go free or receive nothing more than a slap on the wrist by comparison, simply because tangible video evidence of the crime didn't exist or go public. I mean, you're talking about Tyreek Hill. Now, I'm not here tonight to kind of get into those sorts of issues because it's an exercise in futility. This is the manner in which business is conducted in the NFL. But for being such a big business, the NFL has this unusual caveat that I just, I I can't help but get more frustrated by as the years go on. They're one of the few businesses that exist that that shows little remorse for conducting itself in ways that are detrimental to not only its employees, but also its consumers. That's us, the fans. Last week, it was announced that the San Diego Chargers, who have been a member of the NFL since 1961 and have played all but one of those seasons in San Diego, would be relocating to Los Angeles. This is a storyline that's taken almost two full years to play out, with a lot of vitriol and animosity between the ownership, the city, and the fan base to go around for everyone. I mean, this is Jim Rome talking with the subject on his show from Friday. He went in front of the owners... And he pitched what he thought was his brilliant vision of moving up here with the Raiders only to get completely blown out of the water by Stan Kroenke in his Inglewood proposal. And make no mistake, Spanos was wounded by that badly. And why wouldn't he be? Imagine thinking that you're an escrow for your dream mansion only to fall out like five minutes in into an apartment lease. And while you think that the StubHub Center in Carson would roll out the red carpet for the Chargers. I mean, after all, it is the NFL. If anything, they actually seem a little annoyed that they have to share the space with them. This is what came from the stadium's PR. It told the LA Times this about the Chargers getting cozy with them. Quote, the Galaxy is the main priority for StubHub Center. The Chargers' NFL schedule will be built around the Galaxy schedule. The same will happen in terms of 2018. End of quote. Straight fire. You tell me what's worse. 
losing to the 0-14 Browns or the MLS? That audio comes to you from CBS Radio. So you mean to tell me that an owner moved his football team from a city that you're talking they supported him since 61. And yet they're going to move into an MLS stadium for two years who clearly doesn't want them around and then take them to a city that already has a football team that it doesn't appreciate. <laughs> when the story broke, my first reaction was to head over to boltsfromtheblue.com. That's the Chargers SB Nation uh, fan site, kind of like buffalorumblings.com, to see how their fans and bloggers were taking the news. And that's where I found an article that really hit home for me. I mean, when I say hit home, picture a grown man tearing up while reading a sports blog on the toilet at work. I'm talking hit home. And so I thought it would be fitting to have the author of that article on our show tonight to talk about it with me. So we've got on the line with us right now, Mr. Jeff. Now, Jeff, you are a blogger. You write for the SB Nation affiliate of the, or used to write for the SB Nation affiliate of the San Diego Chargers, BoltsFromTheBlue.com. I got to ask you a few questions, you know, just, just a few personal things, just so that me and my fans can kind of get to know you as a person before we start talking to you. First and foremost, I mean, I guess I got to ask, what's your favorite beer? Well, B, well, thanks for the intro, and I'm glad to be on the show. First things first, um, being in San Diego, I'm a uh, craft beer snob because we're awesome at it down here in San Diego. Um, the local brewer, the local beer that I like is uh, is called um, West Coast IPA, and it's done by a brewery called Green Flash. Nice. Interesting, Jeff. I don't know. We didn't even talk about this. You know what I do? Nine to five, or really five forty-five to. <laughs> 515, 645 to 515. I work for a manufacturing company here in Buffalo, and we make CO2 testing equipment for breweries. So I am involved with the the brewery industry. And if you go to any local brew and do like a brew tour, and if you ask them, what do you use to test your CO2 with? And if they say they have a, a device from Zamanagel, that's the company that I work for, and I've probably made that brewery's uh, SS60 volume meter. You know what's funny is I bet you he won't ask about the equipment. He'll probably just ask whether the beer's cold. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so, Jeff, how old are you? I'm 39. You're 39 years old. Married, single, kids? Yep. I am married, and I have two two teenagers. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, which is its own um, bundle of joy most of the time. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah. So you're an older guy. You've been around for a while. You've watched a ton of football in your life. What is your favorite thing to do on game day as far as, like, if you're not going to the stadium, if you're just around the house, what's your favorite game day meal? Do you order out? Do you go out to a bar? Do you order in? What do you do? Well, here in San Diego, before the uh, Chargers left, we actually had a pretty robust uh, tailgating uh, deal out in uh, Mission Valley, and I have a couple of grills in the backyard, and usually in San Diego, the sun's out 330 days a year. So <laughs> that a must be time. nice. So, so usually, um, it, you know, just depending on what I'm up for, sometimes it'll be uh, steak, baked potato, garlic bread, um, 
sometimes I'll do buffalo chicken fajitas. I've done um, ribs. I've if it's if it if I, if I had plenty of time to run a smoker before a Monday night game, sometimes I'd take a day off and I would do um, a brisket or a pulled oh. pork. I I like to do a lot of different things. You're a man after my own heart. I'm a griller and I'm a smoker. Like I, I am a smoker aficionado. I love my smoker. <laughs> it, it's it's on par with my girlfriend at this point. Like I don't know, because <laughs> I know one of them. I know one of them can't leave if they want to. So, <laughs> but no, man, that's that's fantastic. So I have to ask, how did you start off blogging for the San Diego Chargers? Okay, well, I had, I just I enjoy writing, just even in my spare time, and um, I started blogging just on my own personal blog. This was in two thousand nine, and. You know, you notice very, very quickly that nobody's reading your stuff. So on uh, Bolts from the Blue, they had a thing where you could submit a fan post. So I turned in a fan post after um, a Monday night game where the Broncos came in. This was in Josh McDaniels, actually, first year in Denver, where they got off to that great start before falling apart. Came into San Diego and beat the tar out of the Chargers on a Monday night. And I was pissed off and probably had a couple more beers than I should have. And I busted (laughs) out this post. Um... That was 10 reasons why uh, the Chargers are no longer an elite team. It turned out to be about a year and a half too early to write that post. But I submitted <laughs> it as a fan post, and I got a lot of attention. And after that, I started doing, like, game recaps where I would grade uh, the position, uh, each of the position groups. And after that, the guy who ran the blog at the time, his name is uh, John Gennaro, mm-hmm. he offered me a staff spot, and I've been writing for them ever since. That's awesome. Until this past week until this past week now were you assigned to cover the relocation story for the last six months or was that just a topic of particular interest to you because i'll be honest i went through your history now i read one story by you and i was hooked so i started going through your post history and started reading all of your past work and what i saw is that Back in 2014, 2015, you used to contribute game recaps, grades, all kinds of other stories. But over the last four to five months, most of your work has been focused on this relocation story. Okay, well, the deal with that is, is after the 2009 season ended, um, one of the things I volunteered to do was to cover the stadium situation in San Diego. So if you were to go all the way back to the beginning of, of, of my writing, you would start to see some stadium posts very sporadically, like maybe one or two a year, going back to 2010, 2011, 2012, it really started picking up near the end of 2014, and it got to be a thing when this when the L.A. relocation derby turned into a fiasco where I didn't have time to write grades posts or the other things where I would diagram uh, one play during a game. I didn't have time for those other things because I was so busy chasing down all this relocation stuff because with the relocation news, I'm having to chase down news articles and sources online, um, different newspapers all around the country, and just trying to compile as much information as I can to try to get an idea of what the hell's actually going on because there was so many different angles. People are trying to set narratives to pitch their story and then counter narratives. And, yeah, I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're not kidding. It, it became a circus. Now, we all know where we ended up on this. Like, everyone knows where everything landed with the San Diego Chargers. Now, I've seen people, videos of people protesting, throwing eggs. <laughs> I saw the video of the old guy throwing eggs at the stadium, burning just about every sort of Chargers memorabilia or Dean Spano's effigy that, you, that I can think of. Now, it's been a few days, and 
kind of the, the knee jerk reaction period is kind of passed. So I have to ask, since you live there, how are people in San Diego taking this news? Um, kind of like the uh, death of a member of your extended family. It's, I mean, the initial shock, I guess the shock of them actually pulling the trigger and leaving is kind of dissipated, but, you know, even on local news, um, local sports radio, uh, Twitter, Facebook, blogs, people are still talking about how hurt they are, how angry and frustrated they are. And, yeah, the anger is not going to go away from this anytime soon. It, <sighs> it hurts, and it's going to hurt for a while. Oh, I can't even imagine. The surprising thing to me was that as I read back through your articles leading up to the news of the relocation being dropped, the tenor of your articles was sort of positive. It was almost like you were trying to wish, you know what I mean? Like you were almost trying to wish your way into it being true, but you were very honest in your assessment that it probably was still going to happen. Do you think that the kind of hope that the NFL and that the way the meetings kind of broke the hope that you guys had in the days leading up to it, right up until the night before it was announced, do you think that that kind of made things worse once the news actually broke? For me, it did. And again, because I follow this all the time, once once Measure C had failed back in November, we started seeing the national news stories. I mean, Jason Lockenfora of CBS was posting something every Sunday morning like clockwork for like four straight weeks. And every time you see this, one of these lock and forth stories of chargers have no option but to go to LA chargers for sure to go to LA. Every time you see it, it's like a, it's like a kick to the stomach. And at the same time, it's almost like an extremely, this is going to sound really jerky to people who actually have suffered it, but it's like extraordinarily mild PTSD in the sense people in San Diego are so done with this story. They're so tired of feeling jerked around are they staying are they going are they staying are they going is this plan going to work is it not going to work are they being honest are they you know all of it over the last two years and it's just people are were so over it yet every time these stories would come out it was a kick in the stomach and then right after christmas you started hearing the rumors that hey maybe the nfl really doesn't want a second team in los angeles given what happened with the rams this year and there was that little twinge of hope right near the end when the when um a group of NFL owners got together in New York to discuss the Raiders' uh, financing plan for Las Vegas. But apparently whatever happened in those meetings or didn't happen is what triggered uh, Dean Spanos to go ahead and decide, nope, I'm out. And it dropped um, with an Adam Schefter tweet on Wednesday night, and from that point forward, San Diego just lost its mind. Oh, I I can't even imagine being in the middle of that. And, I mean, you touched on it just now. You're talking about what happened with St. Louis. For those Bills fans out there who might be naive to the situation, St. Louis moved to L.A. They, they basically eschewed the, the people who had kept them in business. Stan Kroenke said, hey, you know what? I know that you guys have been my loyal fan base for years after I left Los Angeles the first time. I'm going to go back. Screw you guys. And he left. And the the fury over that was huge in the Missouri area. So they moved to L.A. and immediately saw a steep drop-off in viewership. Game attendance, viewership, the whole nine. They suffered across the board. I mean, according to USA Today, the lowest TV figure for the St. Louis Rams in recent history occurred in 2013 and that was a night that a football game aired on the same night that the St. Louis Cardinals were in the World Series. 
that makes sense that that game wouldn't get a lot of viewership points. It got a 10.9 Nielsen rating. In 2016, the Rams only broke a Nielsen rating of 10.6 in their first two games. For the rest of the season, they couldn't break that point. That's pathetic. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it is. The one thing, though, with the Nielsen, so, and this is one of the things, part of the reason why the, why the NFL ownership has such a desperation for Los Angeles is that, you know, 10, a 10 rating in Los Angeles is the equivalent of a 20 or a 30 rating elsewhere. I mean, even over the last couple of years here, even here in San Diego with all of this relocation garbage going on, the Chargers were Chargers broadcasts were still drawing um, Nielsen ratings in the mid twenties in San Diego. I mean, never mind. You're talking about a team that went nine and twenty three over the last two seasons, but a team <laughs> that spent all of 2015 actively trying to leave San Diego and burning every political bridge they could think of to burn to try to force their way out. You know, that's a really good point. Leads me to one of my other things I want to go over with you here. Measure C. So you're talking about burning political bridges. Measure C was, that, that was the vote that was put up in San Diego. You guys were presented with it in an effort to try to gauge public interest in whether or not the city should bail out the team. It required a two-thirds majority vote, of which it only got 48%. I mean, considering your extensive knowledge of the situation, why do you believe that this measure ultimately failed? Okay, this is going to get a little complicated because I have to verge a little bit into some other things. So I'll try to get through it as quickly and as clearly as I can, so just bear with me for a moment. Sure. California, okay, California um, is very different from a lot of other uh, cities and states across the United States in that it has that special tax requirement. The way tax law works in California is if you just want to raise taxes and have it go to everything, that's a simple majority vote, 50% plus one. In California, if you want to raise a tax specifically to fund firefighters or to specifically hire more policemen or to build a football stadium, whatever you want to spend money on specifically, that requires a two-thirds vote. The problem that you had specifically in San Diego and the reason, in my view, that the measure failed was what the Chargers were proposing was a stadium that was joined up with with an extension that had a convention center to it. The problem with that was, in San Diego, the tourism industry is the dominant industry in the city. So wherever the tourism industry wants to go, that's where the politicians are going to go behind them and a lot of other supporting industries like restaurant association type folks, mm-hmm. um, you know, cab companies, all of, all of the things that are part of the tourism industry are going to follow the tourism industry's lead. In San Diego, we have a convention center that sits right near the water that they've been trying to get expanded for many years to try to keep Comic-Con and other large events. No, you guys guys have some of the biggest events in the country. Well, yeah, but I mean, one of the the problems, though, is that our convention center is no longer big enough to hold even large events. Like, I mean, like Comic-Con spills out all over downtown now. That's how huge Comic-Con has become. It's like it is literally the Super Bowl for Comic-Con book and genre fans. Well, so then I guess my question is, if that's such a huge thing, why is the convention center being conjoined with the stadium such a bad thing? Because, and this is, well, this is the tour, the tourism industries, um, whether or not they're right or wrong about this is kind of beyond the scope of the post, but the tourism industry's position is that 
large conventions like Comic Con want all of their stuff in one specific space. Where the Chargers wanted to build their stadium would be about three or four blocks over, and their concern was, look, it doesn't matter whether or not the weather in San Diego is beautiful. If you're at a convention, you don't want to have to leave the far end of one building, walk six blocks down and maybe a block or two over to get to the other event that you want to see. And that's why, and that was one of the big reasons that they opposed it. Um, and the problem is, is once the tourism industry drew its line in the sand and said, nope, this is not what we want, we're opposing it, then a majority of elected officials followed that lead and a lot of other interest groups in and around San Diego um, were able to we're able to uh, join in on that on that coalition to oppose it. So, so but the, the reason, problem here is, oh, you finish. Uh, Go ahead. This, and, finish. and this is the point that that's. I was going to say this is the point that's really really important for your readers to understand. The Chargers knew this opposition to this plan existed before they crafted Measure C. This is a fight they've been having for some time. So basically, they, they, they almost picked a fight that they knew that they were going to lose. That's that's an excellent way to say it. Yes. See, that's bullshit to me. I, I think that that's absolute bullshit. And clearly the city's against it. But then at the same time, you're, you've got your fan base. 48% came out and said that they wanted it. So clearly well, they're... Well, okay, and this is one of... Well, what I was going to say is well, no, there's, was, a, well, there's act, a group of people that... Or, act, you go. No, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was okay. going to say you talk. The actual, okay, the actual... Um, the, the 43% vote affirmative. Yeah, and people came out and voted for it. But... Again, and you have to, when people talk about this, you have to, again, the Chargers actively chose to antagonize the dominant industry in San Diego in, the, in this measure. And again, they're coming off of a season where they were 4 and 12. They burned every bridge in 2015 trying to leave. They retained an unpopular head coach. There was very little buy in from the rest of the community because they drafted Measure C very, very quickly. They knew it was not what the establishment in San Diego wanted or would support, and they proceeded with it anyway. And then on top of it, you have other yet other factors like the Joey Bosa holdout, which was utterly ridiculous. I'm sorry, if you're trying to get a stadium deal passed in a town where you are trying to make up with your fans, you don't pick a contract fight with the number three overall pick in the draft. No, I'm sorry. That just I mean, spells it, it, dysfunction to your fans. It says it sends a message that says you really don't have any interest in doing this. You don't have any interest in doing this properly, which turns or, off everybody. Or the very, I was going to say, or at the very least, what you're interested in is presenting the appearance to other people who don't follow it closely that you're trying to do the best you can, but people who actually take a closer look at what's happening see it kind of sort of for the uh, – at, we'll charitably call it the Hail Mary that it is. <laughs> so that kind of brings us full circle here. To your final article for BoltsFromTheBlue.com, Tears and Rain. I'm not going to lie. You took something that I was already pissed off about, you know, this whole relocation thing. Nothing makes me angrier than a team that sucked millions of dollars out of its fans, out of the local government, out of everything around it. It's it's basically it's been this entity that's become the center of life for some people. Like some people look at this as like like I look at the bills, and you took it away. <laughs> you know what I mean? You took it and yeah. you like in reading your article, you they took it from you guys. And reading your article, you, you took what I was already upset about. You poured gas on it. You set it on fire. 
<laughs> I'm not even kidding. I was upset. I was visibly upset. I was angry. I'm walking around my office. People are trying to talk to me. I'm telling them to go back to their desks. Everyone get away from me. I, I just I need a few minutes because I'm still trying to get over the, because it got the wheels turning in my head. And for everyone out there who's interested in reading this, I'm going to post a link to it in the description of our podcast tonight because I feel like everyone should read this and just take it for what it is. I've got some questions for you. For those of you who are going to read it, you might want to listen. I, I mean, in your article, you recounted nearly a lifetime of being a fan and what the team meant to you and the things that you've experienced with your friends and your family as being a, a, just a devoted fan of this football team. And in reading it, I can, I can feel it almost about how much it hurt. So I've got to ask, what was your inspiration to write that article? Because it just felt too okay, well, real to be something that was assigned to you or something that you were told to write. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't assigned to. I, I wasn't assigned the article. I wrote it um, on the fly on Thursday morning, and what I was thinking about all Thursday morning, I was thinking about the one section that's relatively early in the post, thinking about when I was a little kid, and I'm, I'm talking like three or four years old. Um, it's not. I wasn't exaggerating when I when I say I knew who Dan Fouts was before I knew who Ronald Reagan was because I. I was born into watching Chargers football. I went to games with my grandparents all the time when my mom was busy um, at work. I'm, I come from a single-parent family. Mm-hmm. So my grandparents would always take me with them to watch Charger games. And, yeah, I was too young to even know anything about football, but the Cannon was really cool, and the Chargers, in those days, they had a, a car with a helmet on it that would drive around the edge of the field whenever they scored. And because my, uh, and my, grand, and my grandfather worked for county government, so – there was always like some like catered snacks in the back. And I mean, the little cheddar cheese cubes were like the greatest thing ever when you're three or four years old and you don't oh, care yeah. about the, the actual football game. Um, but I, I was thinking about that the entire morning and thinking about, and just thinking generally about memories that I had shared with my family and the other, and what popped into my head. I mean, and pardon me for uh, digressing into being, into being a uh, movie nerd. I kept thinking of uh, the end of Blade Runner where Rutger Hauer gives the speech where he says all of his memories will be lost like tears in rain. Mm-hmm. And that was the inspiration for it. You know, I'm not going to ask you to rehash all the emotions that brought you to the decision that you made to stop blogging about the San Diego Chargers. Because I'm sure that this whole process has been a giant drain on you. I mean, I know it can't be easy. But you got to tell me. How has the move affected your overall fandom and love of the team? Well, I'll go ahead and qualify this a little bit by saying I just, I'm not going to write for Bolts from the Blue anymore because that is a Chargers fan site. And since I'm officially no longer a Chargers fan, it's not appropriate for me to write. I, I started my own, I started a different blog several months ago that's called Chasing the Damn Cat, where I can write about movies and other things. And I actually wrote something stadium related on that the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, I'm going to go ahead and write more about football and movies and whatever other things that I decide I want to write about. But I just, at least as far as Bolts from the Blue is concerned, it's a website for Chargers fans. But anyway, back to your original question. In terms of affecting my fandom, Norm, I'll put it to you this way, or I'll ask you this. Would you consider the NFL playoffs appointment viewing? I would. I would. I'd go this out of my way first, to watch it. Oh, Okay, this is the first time, I mean, especially the divisional round of the playoffs is usually the best round of the playoffs there is. 
this was the first time I can ever recall thinking to myself, you know, I really don't give a shit if I stick around the house to watch these games. I mean, if it's on, it's on and I'll go ahead and watch. But, you know, if my, my wife and kids say, hey, let's go to the movies or, hey, let's go out to dinner or, hey, let's go do this. I'd be like, yeah, sure, let's do that. I, and I never thought that I would have so much resentment and anger and frustration that I couldn't do anything with to the point where it took something that I genuinely enjoy and genuinely, genuinely love and turned it into something that I can really just walk away from at the drop of a hat. If I feel like doing anything else. Now we just had, uh, we just mentioned to you before we started recording, there's all the, there's this movement of moving companies that are banding together to refuse to move the chargers. And you had, you had briefly talked about, well, that's the topic of local news. Like, kind of give us a synopsis of what's been going on in local news with that story. Well, there was a story that started in San Diego about two or three days ago when, um, I believe it was, actually, it might have been, it might have been um, Saturday or Sunday, and it was just an item on the evening news, and it showed up a little bit on Twitter, was local moving companies in San Diego um, are banding together to oppose the Chargers move and their weapon of choice is saying, hey, if they call us to help them move, we refuse to help them move. And in fact, I guess some of that even carried over to some moving companies up in uh, Los Angeles who were like, no, we don't want to help them move up here either. <laughs> but but yeah. it's just, I mean, it was it was just one of those little side items that, that was kind of surprising and everybody kind of looked at it as like, Huh, maybe it's not just the fans in San Diego and maybe people in Los Angeles who think this is not the best idea in the world. Man, I'll tell you, I'm I'm sorry I dropped off there for a second. I gotta kinda <laughs> See this is Drew got Marcel Darius choked up. I'm sorry, man. Just hearing you talk about how you felt, I'm 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 not kidding. Like I know you think this is and maybe you think it's a joke, but to me, your article wrecked me. And then hearing you talk about it so casually, just, ah, you know what, I had, I had better things. They broke something that you loved. They, they took something from you. I mean, I'm sorry. It's completely necessary to have you on, Jeff, because this is a position that us as Bills fans were in two years ago when we didn't know who was going to buy the team. Was it going to be Terry Pagula or was it going to be Bon Jovi? Jeff. Well, I mean, one of the things that I, was, that I would say is, and this is something you guys um, are going to want to keep in the back of your head, Part of the, and this is something um, I wrote about actually almost a year ago, and just to keep in mind with stadiums, and the perfect example actually is the Georgia Dome. The Georgia Dome is going to host its last Falcons game on Sunday with the NFC Championship. That stadium was built 25 years ago, and it cost about $370 million adjusted for today's money. The new stadium they're moving into next year is about $1.5 billion. So, I mean, stadium, stadium costs have quadrupled in 25 years. Mm -hmm. And it's reaching the point where it doesn't matter which municipality you're talking about. In another 10, 5 to 10 years, when even if you have, what I, at least from what I've read from the outside, about your ownership group is that they seem to be at least pretty decent, I don't know enough about it one way or the other to say more than that, but you know what happens in 10 or 15 years when somebody, maybe it's your ownership group or maybe it's somebody in some other city says, hey, we're tired of our stadium. It's been 25 years. We want a new building and it's going to cost $2 billion. Which municipality in the United States has the money to 
make even a paltry contribution to something like that. And that is the crux of the entire argument. Jeff, I appreciate you coming on with us tonight so much, man. I, thanks, thank you for taking some time out of your night. I know you, you were having dinner with your family and everything else. Can you... You you were saying you had another website that you're working on. Uh, give us a plug for your website, your other work, uh, where where people can find you on Twitter. Okay, well, um, if you want to look at all the um, if you want to look at all the stadium stuff that I wrote for Bolts from the Blue, you can obviously find that on boltsfromtheblue.com. The uh, the own my own the blog I posted a new my newest stadium article. Uh, this came out yesterday. Is just chasing the damn cat. If you just Google chasing the damn cat, you should find it pretty easily. Um, and on Twitter, my uh, Twitter handle is at um, Jeff Sinyard. Fantastic, man. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. So there you have it, Bills fans. Straight from the horse's mouth. Straight from the horse's ass. From those of you who, for those of you who haven't t- tuned out by now, <laughs> because I know this hasn't been about the Buffalo Bills, and are probably wondering, what does this have to do with our team? We all need to remember something. Had it not been for an owner like Terry Pagula, this could have been us. It could have been us sitting here having this conversation right now. Could have yes. been, it could have been the end to the Rockpile Report podcast. Yes, Terry Pagula is no Dean Spanos. He seems fully committed to this region and this city. And he has, to this point, certainly put his money where his mouth is. In terms of its sports teams and their fans, he seems fully committed to building us winning franchises, even if he is still learning the ropes as to how to get there. I'm in no way, shape, or form accusing anyone or anything. I'm just simply asking for all of you out there to consider this as food for thought. The Chargers were part of San Diego for just as long as the Bills were a part of Buffalo. First, the Hilton family owned them followed by the Klein and the Shulman families, and most recently the Spanos family. And collectively, they spent decades being committed to the city, the people, and the sports fans of San Diego. And they, too, wanted to embrace success alongside all of them. And yet, here we are. I guess what I'm trying to say here is pretty simple. We here in Buffalo, we love this game. We love this team. And right now, the team and the game love us. But we need to watch. <laughs> we need to watch how things have unfolded here in San Diego with open and clear eyes, and try not to be naive. Because ultimately, the NFL is a business, and someday it might be our turn. And on that note, we're gonna we're gonna take off. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger. And this has been the Rockpile Report. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. 
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.